Hello, and welcome to Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley, joined as always by my co-host, David Roberts. Permission to Be exists to be a space of hope for those journeying to find their true, authentic selves. We hope that the story shared here will inspire you on your own journey and help you unlock the permission to be who you have always truly been. Today, we are so honored to have with us Melissa Flora Bixler, who is the pastor of Raleigh Mennonite Church. And she's a graduate of Duke University and Princeton Theological Seminary. She has a brand new book coming out entitled Fire by Night, Finding God in the Pages of the Old Testament. Melissa, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So Melissa, we always start off the Permission to Be podcast with a question, which is, if you were to have a movie about your life made, who would play you or whom, it could be multiple people, would play you? So I'm going to go with uh, Natalie Portman on this. Um, You may not know this, but she is uh, only five feet, three inches tall, which is is pretty short for an an actress. And so I really appreciate the, the kind of stamina that it must have taken for her to kind of get where she is at that at that height. And I I think it would be a, a more true representation of me at my own of height around five five. So yeah, I'm, I'm gonna go with Emily. The mother of Darth Vader. Wonderful answer. <laughs> Maybe there's some subconscious thing about my own children in this answer, but I'm just gonna I'm I'm not gonna dwell on that. So on a more serious note, podcast is called Permission to Be. And as such, uh, the first thing, well, second thing after the movie question, the first thing other than that, that we ask everyone is what in your life, spiritual journey specifically, or life more broadly, could be an event, could be a person, could be a series of events, relationships, et cetera, et cetera. Regardless, what for you gave you permission explicitly or implicitly to be who you are today, perhaps maybe who you always were? behind in some sort of institutional or emotional restraint or obstacle put in your way. But really, uh, what gave Melissa permission to be Melissa? Yeah. So thinking about how this, the experience I had of right out of graduate school, moving into the L'Arche community of Portland, Oregon. L'Arche is a community, intentional community for people with and without intellectual disabilities who share the rhythms of daily life together. So that may sound unremarkable to those of us who who have a lot of freedom over the decisions we make in our life and and who have spaces for the formation of families that have come naturally to us or friendship people who have chosen us for friendship but when when there's something that limits you cognitively and it makes all of those things that I think we take for granted about some very basic things about flourishing and takes them off the table in a lot of ways so people with especially with profound intellectual disabilities as they get older as they age out of programs at schools is oftentimes struggle with loneliness, live in group homes where there's uh, shift workers who come out and, you know, every hour are paid minimum wage. And because of that, they work for, uh, you know, six months to a year and then they're on to something else. And there's not a lot of stability. And that was the world. That was the world for people with especially profound intellectual disabilities for a long time until these communities started to form um, where people said, we actually think that our flourishing is is somehow dependent on your flourishing and their gifts to be discovered here. And for us to fully know ourselves, we have to know know you and be in relationship with you. And so 
these communities started to form around the world. And I lived in one in Portland, Oregon. Um, and so that was a place for me that that came at a moment when I had just finished graduate school at, at Duke University. I was in the in the religion department. And it was a really intense program. I think like most people, maybe especially women who've had a particular gendered experience and struggled a lot with imposter syndrome and always a sense of just not really measuring up. Um, I mean, the whole idea is it's, it's ultra competitive, right? Like everybody's trying to get on, right? To, uh, to the net, like to the PhD program or like on to teach somewhere. And, and, and so this overwhelming sense of always just not being enough everything around you, right, is telling you that story. And so through this sort of random series of events that also involved Stanley Hauerwas telling me I should go live in, in the Larsh community, I did. I, I moved out to Portland, Oregon, kind of sight unseen. And oh, wow. Yeah. Um, I remember walking up to the door and thinking, like, what am I doing? <laughs> like, I, yeah. I, like, I don't know anyone with intellectual disabilities. Like, Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like, I yeah. don't, I have no connection to the, like, to, I mean, I knew sort of, I knew a lot about this community from people like Henry Nowen. You guys read some things. Yeah. Like that patron scene of, of L'Arche and, and, and some things by Jean Vanier, but, but I didn't really know anything about the people of L'Arche um, until I sort of stepped in the door into this new life of people who discovered each other's gifts in their weakness and in their vulnerability and where the sort of the things that we used to, the natural lines of competition and, and striving are just off the table because you don't really have, um, you're, you're just in a completely different world with a different set of, of needs and a, a different set of ways of being together. And though that was, that was a transformative experience for me. And you're, uh, did I read that you are now on the board there? Yes. Yes, I am. I am the chair of the board of Larson, North Carolina in a very different role. And yeah, so this is like all the things that I, I was an assistant. Mm-hmm. So I lived full time in the community. That was my job, right? I didn't, I didn't do anything else. It's just present to the core members and to the community. Um, yeah, but trying to get this community off the ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, we have a 10 year waiting list for housing wow. in North Carolina, it, just as long a, a waiting list for people to get an innovations waiver, just to even have access to some of those services. And wow, yeah, and so there, there really is a housing crisis for people with intellectual disabilities in, in North Carolina. And I mean, but, but also not just housing, but places where people are seen as people who have things to offer the world, right? Sure. People who are chosen by others, mm-hmm. right? To, to choose there, not because it, because this is a job and you just have to do it and clock in and out, but um, to choose life together. Um, that's right. Like one large on every street. Would be, <laughs> would be Man, yeah. You need like a hundred of those in North Carolina alone. Yeah. All right. So you're involved in Larsh. Yeah, yeah. You have your church. Tell us a little bit about, if you would, were you always a Mennonite? No, I wasn't. Um, okay. So what did that transition look like? Yeah, so I grew up in the Episcopal Church, which I know conjures up certain images, but I think um, th- I actually grew up in the conservative part of the Episcopal Church that has left the Episcopal Church and is now the 
Anglican Church in North America, Akina. Um, huh. So, so I actually had a very different experience, I think. Then, and and I kind of, I actually often wonder where where I would be now if I if I'd grown up in a Episcopal church, like I think a lot of people think of Episcopal churches as more progressive place. But I didn't. So I didn't have any. I didn't really have women pastors mm-hmm. growing up. Um, didn't hear mm-hmm. didn't hear yeah. a woman preach until I was twenty years old. Wow. Yeah. And just sort of had the young life youth group experience. And, um, and around the time that I got to Duke, two things happened. One is that yeah. the, we entered the Iraq war it was really the, mm-hmm. the first conflict of that kind in, in my lifetime, which is kind of funny. None of my children have, um, has been alive in a time where we weren't at war. Wow, yeah. <laughs> so it's amazing that it took, you know, most of my life was like that. And yeah, so, so just a strange, strange thing. But, um, and, and the other thing was that this, um, church split was happening for the, for the Episcopal mm-hmm. church. And I think between those two things, it just, it was a really hard split for, for the Episcopal church. Mm-hmm. I think not un, unlike things that we, we see with, with the Methodists sure. now, but, um, but it was really ugly. And, you know, for a long time, I sort of compared it to my, like kind of feeling like my ecclesial parents yeah, were getting yeah. a divorce mm-hmm. and kind of didn't want to, wasn't really that interested in either of them being in a yeah, relationship yeah. with either of them at the moment. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And, and so around that time, I, I was invited by someone uh, to hear somebody from Mennonite Central Committee, which I now know is the uh, relief and development peacemaking wing internationally for the, for the Mennonite Church. Uh, so like the Methodists mm-hmm. have UMCOR and so have different organizations. And um, Peter Dula, who I went to go hear speak at this little Mennonite church, Chapel Mennonite, he had been to Iraq to be... Um, a, to teach at to mm-hmm. teach at the seminary at, at the height of the conflict there, and he was telling us the story about you know his his neighbors were being kidnapped and and there was always this sort of sense of when should he finally evacuate and but this resp- the re- real responsibility he felt to his students who were trying to stick it out to be spiritual community there and he went without an armed guard and he was the only American there he, who who didn't have someone to, there to mm-hmm. protect him with a gun and I was just like what? <laughs> and, you know, as he's talking about this, it, it was, be, it was because of Jesus, because Jesus would never want him to, to be protected at the cost of someone else's life because we're supposed mm-hmm. to love our enemies. Yeah. Like, That's not very practical. I mean, this is, you know, this is the kind of world like, like, like all that Jesus mm. stuff is great. Um, but let's be, let's be <laughs> honest here. And I couldn't believe, like, these people actually were, like, actually, like, thought you were supposed to do the things that Jesus said you were supposed to do. Um, yeah. And, and I, I mean, it's, I think it's the, cl- it's the closest I can say, I, I can say that I've had to a conversion experience. Mm, yeah. I have this actually encountering, just being like, oh, wow, you, like, we, we really mm. are supposed to, to follow this nonviolent Jesus, even unto death. Like, like that's like pick up your cross and follow me actually means not shooting your enemy and that, that your life is not how somehow in the calculus of moral things more important than the life of an Iraqi insurgent like that, like that's actually what the gospel is. And I, you know, it, it took me a long time to sort of work through a lot of the sort of theological Mm. questions I had about, you know, it's pretty Mm. big 
pretty big sea between the Episcopal Church and Anabaptism that had to cross. Um, so it took me about three years worshiping at Chapel Hill Mennonite and um, Portland Mennonite. Mm-hmm. Um, but eventually sort of uh, took the leap of, of joining that community and sort of believing in the, in the future of that community, that church mm-hmm. community. Very cool. So for anyone listening who's maybe unfamiliar with Mennonites outside of um, perhaps some of the either stereotypes or just more commonly known facets, the nonviolence, I think is something that a lot of people know about. But if you were given the elevator speech about what it means to be a Mennonite, what would you tell someone? The first thing is that, you know, I think it is good to recognize that there's a, a broad spectrum of, of Mennonites, um, just like there is in any tradition. So Sinead O'Connor and the Pope are both Catholic. So, you know, you <laughs> in every well tradition. We're, we're probably the Sinead O'Connor in this, um, in this scenario, perhaps, <laughs> right. um, of right. Mennonites. But we're still in there. We're still in it. Um, but yeah, we uh, the, the Mennonite Church is a part of Anabaptism, which is not anti-baptism. Um, Anabaptism um, meaning rebaptizers, which is actually a name given to us by our enemies. It's um, a derogatory term, like pity those fools. <laughs> and so... That was what we were called, but but Anabaptists were baptized upon uh, confession of faith, mm-hmm. and it was a reaction to uh, the Catholic Church as a coercive form of of religious identity. Um, so, I think one thing to remember about infant baptism is that it took place in a in a church state. The Roman Catholic Church was right. was not just the church; it was also the state, and and the same roles that were used for baptism were also the roles that were used for taxation. Mm-hmm. Um, so you actually became a citizen of the Roman Catholic, mm-hmm. of, of Rome through your baptism. And so as the Reformation was going on, you know, Anabaptists sort of hung out with Luther and then Zwingli and, you know, trying to find a way and, and wanted to push these reforms far, further. And and they're like, no, we're, you know, we actually just sort of want the same thing. Like we want church states too. We want Lutheran states or, you know, we want we want to retain some political power here. And and the Anabaptists are like, actually, I don't, mm-hmm. like that, did, like we don't see that in the Bible. Like that's like, that's my community like definitely is not down with like you know try, trying to control the temple or trying to like can, like Jesus like kind of tries <laughs> yeah. to not be the king like a lot of times in the Bible so so we call it the radical reformation but radical in the sense of returning to the root of the story of the gospel and the life of Jesus um, so we got so so that means we have there's like weird things about Mennonites like we don't mm. take pledges for instance so say the pledge of allegiance because we have we only have loyalty to Jesus not to the state pledge of allegiance is weird though like i thought that as like a kindergartner i was like this is weird that we're doing this so good on the mennonites for figuring that out centuries ago right yeah so as a southern baptist raised person where does the christian flag fall in yeah we don't have any flags at all in in our sanctuaries um but i think because it's um because flags are are mostly it's like a sub subbing in right like so we have the american flag but we have the church flag right like but it's still it's trafficking in the same types of power mm-hmm. and i know the whole idea is to divest yourself of coercive forms of power um and so mennonites have been are, are pretty simple in terms of um our worship style mm-hmm. and you know our, our sanctuaries mm. at like I think ninety percent of the churches on the East Coast we all rent our buildings because we don't we don't want to own a building it's just sort of for simplicity and um, mm. yeah and as a church it was it be mm-hmm. deeply persecuted 
after because because of this sort of anti-state stance, um, it's like Calvin called Anabaptists anarchists, and um, and so because of that, we're, mm-hmm. we're 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 persecuted, and sort of this history of martyrdom, and sort of the church on the run. You know that your mm. your church in that meets in caves or in forests or in in people's basements just to stay alive, and usually we're not very successful at that. And pacifism is something that the Anabaptists practice as well. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's a long history of, of pacifism, conscientious objectors to war. Mm-hmm. Um, but before that, it, something not a, not a lot of people know is that we didn't actually have conscientious objection until World, World War II. Mm. So before that, um, you just went to prison. And um, wow. so Mennonites were thrown in Leavenworth Prison in Kansas mm. and, and some were were tortured and tortured to death. Oh, wow. You know, these stories of, of Mennonites being sent home um, in coffins to their mothers and the mothers would open up these um, coffins and see their sons dressed in the military uniform. Oh my Sort of as gosh. like one final, yeah, you know, middle finger yeah. to the family. Yeah. Right. This is like not, not the happiest podcast. Well, but it's also history. And I think a lot of us in the United States have chosen to live our life in a very, um, we have blinders on. And or we have chosen to leave our blind spots alone. And I think that the um, reality of who our nation is, is needs to be peeled back. Um, and we're seeing little glimpses of that with conversations on race, um, with conversations about the state of our country and the persona that we put out there as a nation but the reality that most people live in and that um, a lot of us, and when I say a lot, I'm speaking more about white middle class, um, Mm -hmm. have chosen to live in ignorance. And I think we need to start looking at that. And it's not always a happy conversation. Um, And I don't think it has to be a bad conversation either. Um, I think it needs to be a conversation that we step into um, with Mm -hmm. willingness um, or or we're never going to evolve. We're just going to be stuck. Um, so even though it's not happy, I think it's, I think it's somewhere we yeah. need to, it need to be always open and willing to go. But you're involved in other happy things. <laughs> David's going to bring the happy back. As well as this, like, I know you've talked in the past and written in the past about, mm. about prison reform. That's not happy, but. <laughs> well, no, it's, it, it, it will be once it's reformed. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. yeah. So talk to us about the hope, the, the happy hope. Uh, that is at the you know you know you know at the the receding horizon, you know beyond our our completely broken and tragically undressed for profit prison system. Yeah. Not well. On this podcast, I I can announce that we have been raising money to free a. A Nicaraguan pastor from a detention center in Eloy in Arizona, and she got out today. We raised enough. We raised her bond twelve thousand five hundred dollars. That's amazing. Awesome. Isn't that awesome? That is awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. All these churches just got together. We're like, we knew it was too much for one person to do, but we all just kind of threw it in. And, and now she can adequately prepare for her case um, mm. outside outside the. Mm very terrible for-profit detention center that a lot of time involves in. I used to live in Arizona. Eloy, that sucks. Like, yeah. Yeah. like on top of all of the, like, like they put it in Eloy because they knew Eloy sucks. And they're like, yeah, yeah let's, let's put it here. Cause yeah. this is one of the worst places in the country. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, uh, uh. Yeah. And in some ways, actually, though, like you can get there from Tucson, which is, um, you know, sometimes they'll just put these in like Stewart Detention Center and that's near us in Georgia. That's like takes seven and a half hours to get there from Raleigh. So, so some, you know, the, the inaccessibility of them and like the, in the, how it's uninhabitable for lawyers is another mm-hmm. feature of these for-profit detention centers, because it means that people don't have access to the kind of support they need to, to fight their cases. And yeah, it's just, it's all part of a system. Um, but since we're talking about hope, um, actually, uh, <laughs> one of the things I learned from reading Saul Alinsky, the, the organizer Saul Alinsky, is that the more he did organization, the more he realized um, imagination was a was a key ingredient to leadership mm. and work. Um, and and I, I've thought about him saying that a lot because I think I actually do have a really good imagination for a world without prisons. Like mm-hmm. it's, I think we have to have these, this big imagination for a world at, as a world as it should be and mm-hmm. um, a yeah. world that is yeah. possible. Um, and I think as long as we think, oh, wow, no, just this, this problem is too big. And, and I, but to actually be able to sit down and say, oh, I, I can imagine this happening. Mm-hmm. And, and oh, like, here's the structure that's keeping this in place. And here's what I would mm-hmm. do a, a little bit at a time to, to chip away at this. Mm-hmm. But not having the imagination at the end of it just makes it feel overwhelming. And yeah, so so I just I think imagination is so important for us as in any movement work that we're doing. Absolutely. Yeah. Well said. I mean, that's that like you said, that's how we're gonna have hope. I mean, otherwise it's just gonna be depressive because the depth of the corruption and how everything is built on what we thought is not true. Y- you do. You have to have that imagination. Yeah. You absolutely do. Mm-hmm. Or, or we're just not ever going to move forward. And I think I know that that imagination is part of the divine essence that it, each of us are given. And that that's what pulls us forward. Yeah. Because we, we just, we will get too defeated. We'll get to, I mean, just emotionally depressed, just we can't handle it because of how bad it's gotten or how bad we've chosen not to see it. So tell me, tell us, tell people who are listening, what started you on this journey to write Fire by Night? Yeah. um, So part of it is, part of it was my own love of the Old Testament and Mm -hmm trying to work that out in a tradition that thinks of itself as very uh, deeply committed to the gospels. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, the, I mean, I think like Mennonites is, like being Jesus people is a pretty central part of our identity. Um, but I came into it sort of with this pre-established love for, for Hebrew and Aramaic scriptures. And, um, and so I think part of it was sort of working that out within myself. And, and another part of it was sort of discontent with, with some of the ways I had seen, I had, I had read, I had not been able to read something that sort of satisfied my own sense of, of, of that mm-hmm. picture clear. And I think it, you know, it's, and it was actually, you know, Amy Gingrich from Herald Press was like, Oh, you have thought about writing something? And, 
I hadn't, um, not, not like that. And, and we talked about it some more and sort of realized that I think also women just need to be writing more books, <laughs> especially in uh, yes. the Bible. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I, 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 I had this discovery the other day because you can, you know, see your Amazon ranking mm-hmm. and it's just like, out of the hundred top hundred books at that moment, um, for Old Testament, four had been written by women. Four. Whoa. Um, that is a sad percentage. Right? For the sake of like proliferating this kind of revolution, what like, like would you recommend the other three or, or is one of them yours or? <laughs> I was not. Yeah. One, one of them was mine. Another one looked like um, it was something like um, Psalm 91, God's promise for uh, people in the military or something like that. So, yeah, I mean, you know, if you're, if that's your world, that maybe that's something yeah, you're looking yeah. for. Um, yeah. And a couple other word scholarly works, which also looked great. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, you know, I didn't really think about this very much, but I didn't, I, I think I've always sort of assumed that the people who, from my graduate school programs, who went on to PhDs, were going to be the ones to write books and teach classes. And, and I think there's this other question about how do we let ourselves be fully who we are? It is that the, the things that you're you're good at are going to connect to the places in the world where those things can flourish. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think I always just assumed teaching was off the table. It was like, it was like a lot of like, well, I'm, I'm just not good enough to do these mm-hmm. things. And, and then people keep asking you to do stuff, right? And yeah. someone asks you if you want to write a book and then it's, it's, it's probably okay. It's an okay book. And, and so I think just allowing, right, allowing that space. Yeah. Touching back on the, you're not good enough. Do you think that stems from how you were raised or just how we live in a society that its first inclination is not to empower women? I mean, I do think that, you know, there is very much that you can't be what you can't see, right? So if you, if you, if you don't have women as pastors, it's going to be, it's hard for you to imagine. I I just remember it just how, how much time it took to get used to hearing a woman, like, like the physical act of hearing a woman's yeah. Yeah. The tone. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. When you've, when you've been enculturated in yeah. hearing only the word of God preached by a man's voice. Um, mm-hmm. So th- I do think there is this, yeah, it, the places that I, I found myself in um, were contributing to that. Um, mm-hmm. And, but also, you know, we still know that graduate programs, especially at the time I was going through them were, were largely men, right? The, yeah. uh, men are mm-hmm. more likely to thrive at, at standardized tests than women are. <laughs> and, 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 you know, so we also have these, these systems and access barriers that are set up along the way um, mm-hmm. that, that make it difficult for women, women to get through. So I think all of that was sort of playing into yeah. And now the book is, by the time we release this, the book yeah. will be out. So how do you feel about it? It's done. It's ready to, the you know, the world's going to, you can get all the Amazon reviews. Well, hopefully. I know authors always want more Amazon reviews because those are right. helpful. But um, so are you, are, you, are you feeling good? Are you feeling anxious? Like kind of just don't even care anymore because you did it and it's done. And Yeah. I, mean, I think there's always this sense of anxiety, especially when I'm let's say that's, that's actually probably not true. There's probably tons of people who don't have any anxiety about this. I should just speak for myself. I feel (laughs) around any time uh, we're in, I'm discussing something that is, I I only have partial ownership of as a, as a 
Old Testament. And, and so that the, those questions are always sort of in the back of my mind. Does this, does the, is this a work that would honor the, our co-readers of, of scripture? Mm-hmm. Jewish community, uh, but in but in some ways also the the Muslim community who, in sure. in, a, in sort of a different form, shares much of this tradition with us. And so, but I think that's a that's a that's a healthy sense of anxiety of wanting to wanting to honor those traditions and wanting to. It, you know, I think my constant position when I talk about reading the Old Testament is that I'm a Gentile who has been grafted mm-hmm. in by grace to God's um, covenant with Israel that that spans generations before me. Um, and so I, it, I, I have a very humble attitude towards the Old Testament and mm-hmm. um, a very sort of open hand about about the the reading of. I, you'll you'll notice I don't have a lot of like these are the rules like these are the these are the five that you need in order to like really understand the Old Testament because I just I really don't feel like I'm in a place um, I'm in a place where I ha- I'm a receiver of a gift um, sure. and mm. yeah and I'm not the and I'm not the primary <laughs> primary owner of that gift um, yeah. mm-hmm. so one thing that I find really interesting and I think for some of our listeners it'll be helpful to unpack it a little bit is you mentioned wanting um, to, of course, you know, people would assume reading the old Testament, honoring the Jewish side of it, but you said Muslim. And I would love for you to, ex- to share a little bit more, unpack a little bit more why that is so important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Part of that is, I, you know, I, I think we, I, I have a chapter where we talk specifically about uh, relationships that our church has had with the Masjid here in Raleigh, uh, the Islamic Association, and my my friendship with Imam uh, Abu Taleb. And I and I wanted to pull that out specifically because I think we often we we do have a better sense of our relationship to Judaism. Um, it, it, in a lot of ways, you know, right? We're both people of the book. We have this sort of it's a clear canon of what we share. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's also important for us to remember that that we have our uh, our siblings, uh, our Muslim siblings, are also a part of that tradition in many ways, and that often gets mm. sidelined in ways that I, yep. um, in part, is a is a racial otherizing, yep. right? Um, mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Definitely. And so that that gets even more more complicated in sort of this analysis of who is the other here. Um, mm-hmm. And somehow we have, we, who we have chosen to be outside of, of, uh, of, of our community or our covenant or our readings. Um, and so constantly working on that relationship and um, learning to listen, showing up for yeah. being present to be like le- had our, our school just did a school exchange with the Islamic association school recently. Oh, cool. Um, because those relationships are necessary for us to be able to to take seriously the the complications of that mm-hmm. of that interweaving yeah. of all three of those traditions. Absolutely, that totally makes sense. So, if you were to, you know, I kind of had you do the elevator speech of what is a Mennonite. What would the elevator speech? I guess maybe be kind of your slightly expanded version of what's written on the back cover or something like that. But like you're. You're maybe sitting with someone who maybe they're in a progressive space and they don't really have any, they don't really know what to do with the Old Testament anymore because it seems dated, patriarchal, Mm. violence, all the stereotypes that I know you are well aware of 
and we're well aware of when you dove into this project. Mm-hmm. So what would you tell the self-described progressive or liberal Christian who's kind of like, I love Jesus, but so, so how would you say, how would you kind of, how would you kind of loop it back around to, Hey, you should read my book. <laughs> ah. Yes. Um, reminding me of how I, how many of my um, women author friends talk about the anxieties around um, self-promotion. So sort of like stops my heart to even imagine like saying that to someone like, hey, you should read my book. Um, <laughs> but were I to get the, the gumption up to do that, um, I think that uh, what is important for us as 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 people grafted in to this into the tradition of the Old Testament is not to lose sight of, and this I think this will be especially important for progressive Christians, um, not to lose sight of how um, we actually those of us who are in 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 white churches actually have a responsibility to think about our relationship to. Um, to Israel and and how that has been structured over time. Um, Mm. I don't think people realize, um, and that we, you don't get to just say, Oh, I don't, you know, I don't read the old Testament. Like you're in a country, you live in a country that you live on land that you were able to live on because the Catholic church in Spain came up with the doctrine of discovery that said they were the new Israel and that they had replaced the old Israel and, uh, and they and they universalized this faith. It could travel anywhere and all lands were empty um, because, uh, mm-hmm. and were empty for, because they were filled with heathens and mm-hmm. people could take these lands. Um, um, and so to say <laughs> every white person has a relationship to the Old Testament one way or the other. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it is, a, it's, I mean, I think Willie Jennings was right about this. Um, and this is a, this is his book, the Christian imagination um, that what, what we end up getting through this, um, through supersessionism, um, getting tangled up in the European uh, colonial project is, is the formation of race. And, mm. um, and we have all been benefactors of that. Yep. Um, and mm. so there's no, there's no getting, like, you, you don't get a pass on that. Mm. Um, you know, um, so, so you can keep saying, oh, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't want to deal with the violence of the Old Testament. I mean, th- that's fine. Or you can actually say like, oh, wow, I need to, I need to do some work here about what this means. What does that mean for me? Um, because often what it means is, oh, that God is so violent yep. and my Jesus is so, it, and this is the, this is how we got here, yeah. right? <laughs> is we reject this old God and this old covenant and it's been replaced by Jesus and this new covenant. Um, and that is a, that is that is a deeply racialized system. Um, mm. So, so I, I mean, when I hear progressives say that, I, it, it often feels like um, a naive s- sort of anxiety about uh, about violence, and oftentimes that is not even justified. Uh, to, to be quite honest, mm-hmm. like, um, but but. Yeah, but we, I, I think we owe, we owe our, we have a responsibility mm-hmm. to, to think about the, the past that we carry with us in Bible, but, but especially to Hebrew and Aramaic scriptures. Excellent. That was a great elevator ride. 
I don't know if I would actually say that. That would that's like kind of aggressive. Be like, you should read this because of the, the, the the colonialist project in Spain. I think people would be like, um, or I could just read some Nicholas Sparks. No, no you got to shoot your shot. Um, nope, because. I will just be honest. I, I didn't know about 50% of the things you just shared. And so for me, that was amazing and affirming of some of the things that my being naive has uh, slowly been whittled at over the last five years. And so that was affirmation mm-hmm. for me, um, mm-hmm. affirmation of things that I'm learning. And so I th- no, I think you go for it. I think you should say it Yeah. because um, people, because there comes a point of like, okay, we believe this, we believe that our system's corrupt, but we need that foundation of this is why, this is the details. This is how far back it started. This is we, how it was created. And we are so entrenched in it even more. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's somebody like Willie Jennings who really wrote the book on, on how for us to, to think about, um, supersessionism as, as related. And then I, I, you know, Dr. Jennings was my, was my teacher in books in the classroom, out of the classroom. And so, you know, as as we're thinking about, you know, where did this book come from? I think like the next step is for us to be, is for us to create different imaginative landscapes Mm. for how to, for how to interact with this part of our Bible. Um, so I don't, again, I don't want to come in and say like, like, like repeat the work that he did. Mm-hmm. I actually want to do it. Yeah. Like, like I want to say, okay, because you taught me that. The, so I did this work, you know, I, 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 in continue to this ongoing work within myself. This is, this is how I can read this three mm-hmm. quarters of our Bible now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So. And, and, and real quick, you, you said it back in there, um, a moment ago, but, but for anyone wondering what. How, how would you kind of succinctly define supersessionism? Um, if someone's hearing mm. that term for the first time, perhaps. Um, yeah. Supersessionism is the um, false belief that when Jesus comes, the historic covenantal relationship with the people of Israel um, in their geographic and um specificity as a people um, ends and it is replaced by the church and the new covenant. Um, And so there's a cutting off that, that, that takes place. And so then what happens is you can read back any of the promises Mm -hmm. from the old Testament become the promises of Israel, um, the new as the, as the church. Um, And, and the, and the Jews are sort of pushed to the side as a rejected people. Yep, and then everyone gets Jeremiah twenty nine eleven tattoos. And right there, you go. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. yep, yep, That's that's the second step of supersessionism. Yep. The tattoos. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So no, I think uh, that's great. Um, no, I, and I and I totally understand where you're coming from from the aggressiveness aspect of it. And yet, I mean, in 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 that succinct little elevator speech of a pitch, I mean, you tied, I think, quite convincingly. You know you know, the, the, the construct of race and the way that it's kind of been leveraged by white supremacy, you know, to, you know, kind of the original church, original Christian sin of supersessionism. So, yeah, that's that's a 
deeply compelling and deeply relevant to so much of our kind of contemporary situation here in America. So, so yeah, someone might be picking up a book thinking they're going to read about old, the Old Testament and they're going to find themselves, based on that pitch at least, deeply, deeply, you know, entrenched in wrestling with, you know, much of our contemporary political reality. And so, I don't know, sounds like a page turner to me. Yeah, but we'll see. I hope so. And yeah, it's, it's felt good to get affirmation from from some people I care about. Um, Ellen Davis, mm, good, who yeah, teaches at yeah. Duke, it's it's a strange and wonderful thing to have your your teachers tell you um, that they they think you've written something worth reading. So I'm um, well, good grateful, Melissa. I had the um, a little bit earlier today. I listened to you um, do an interview, and you talked about that you would say that you are um, religious, but not spiritual. And I feel like for a lot of us, including myself, um, coming out of the fundamentalist evangelical churches, it's been this proclamation of, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, you know, rah, rah, rah. Um, And I would love for you just to unpack what that means for you to say that you're you would say you're religious and not spiritual. Yeah. Uh, part of it is I, you know, I, I think just personality wise that I'm just not a very touchy feely person. Um, ah. Amen. Says the Enneagram five. Yeah. I'm just not. I'm <laughs> not till after Easter. Yeah. <laughs> well. he, folks, he's um, giving up the Enneagram for Lent. FYI. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, I think part of it is a personality thing, but, you know, I mentioned earlier that I grew up in the Episcopal church. And even though I grew up in the, in the conservative evangelical end of the Episcopal church, I still took, Mm. I still took Eucharist every Sunday. And, and when I look back, I think the liturgy and, and the sustained relationship of the church over time is, is really what, what Mm. held on to me, even through some pretty funky, um, radio head smashing youth group events. Um, and yeah, so I, I think in light of like a lot of things that, that I think Maybe in in some evangelical traditions mm. were your primary experiences, like maybe particular types of worship music or 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 weird fundamentalist mm-hmm. sex pledges, oh, mm-hmm. right? Yep. That's a thing. Yep. Yeah. I okay. still have my card laminated. I kept it in my cover of my Bible. Yeah. Oh, laminated. I guess. I mean, just in case you need to go swimming with it or something. Oh, Lord. Like, Maybe now I'll have a fire pit and burn it as I drink my beer. Oh, that's amazing. Um, yeah, but but in addition to all of those um, all of those things, I also had this um, this this tradition that said, mm-hmm. no matter what happens, um, Christ is present mm-hmm. here um, in in the receiving of this body and and blood and and to say these words that were handed down through generations um and that people mm. people had given their lives to to saying to saying these words and to and to forming them um over time i really do i do look back and think that there was something significant about that for me so when i th- and and what that taught me um what what communion mm. taught me what eucharist taught me is i just need other people I, to be a Christian. Like I, I was on a desert Island. I would be, I don't know, something else like a Instagram, um, 
celebrity. What do you call those? Influencer. I'd be, oh, yeah, I would join that. Yeah. I would definitely do something else besides the Jesus thing because I just am not, I'm not in it for anything except the, the body of Christ, which mm. forms the community. Mm. Um, I couldn't believe a single thing on my own. <laughs> People are always believing things for me when it's, when it's just too hard. Mm. Um, and, and sometimes it is, sometimes I, you know, yeah. I, suffer from anxiety and depression. And, and sometimes it's actually just physically too hard to believe something, but I don't have to do that all the time because I've got other people who, who can believe for me, um, who can hold that for me for a while. Um, yeah. And so as soon as you start putting people together, you have a religion mm-hmm. and <laughs> like very quickly, you have to have like decisions about how you're going to make decisions and about who's going to be in charge of stuff and who's going to bring the potluck food. And so as much as I think we try to say, like, we try to disperse as soon as we get back together, we, and I think there's good ways to do that. And I think, you know, probably people are doing it better and, but the Mennonites have been doing it pretty good for me. Um, taught me some pretty good practices about consensus decision-making and, how to not get all desserts for potluck and things like that. And, and so I'm going to, I'm going to hang with these guys um, in this life and, and keep doing this religious thing with them, even though it's like gets messed up sometime. Sure. And so in closing then, you know, kind of wrapping up everything. Uh, one thing that we have been asking everyone is um, kind of the idea of like, this notion of salvation. Salvation is, for anyone who's grown up in any Christian tradition, salvation is key. You might even say it's the crux of our faith. Um, and yet, the you know, articulations mm. of salvation are as diverse as the Christian tradition. And so, we've learned a little bit about your um, your corner of the Christian tradition here. How how would you? Not necessarily, uh, not, not necessarily what the Mennonite party line is, although if, if it happens to be yours, excellent. But Melissa, how does Melissa articulate salvation? What does salvation mean to you? Yeah, Mennonites don't really have party lines about things like we're non creedal So <laughs> you have a whole other podcast yeah. about that. Yeah, I know. It's just a whole other, yeah. Got, her. Got a lot going on. Um, yeah, yeah. So when I think about salvation, when I hear that word immediately comes to mind is um, uh, the phrase, the redemption of all creation that um, I think we sort of, you know, I think a lot of us, me at least um, grew up in this tradition where Jesus is sort of like flying over the earth and picking up certain people and you know, throwing them in the boat and then some of them are still down there. Kurt Cameron, Nick Cage, Chad Michael. Yes. Actually, those are the guys who got left behind. They, he's not, not who Jesus picked up. So. Oh. That's getting at, you know, whatever, but the right, you know, something like who the people who had the right belief system, you know, like said the right words, like men, you know, whatever the right words were and picked them up. And, and, and and then I, I actually read Romans finally. (laughs) There's all of this language about more like, um, like this inoculation uh, against sin for Mm -hmm. all of creation, like for trees and grass and, butterflies and 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 everything that that makes up our mars and everything that's a part of the our created world and that that's something that this power of sin and death that has come into it has suddenly been neutralized in jesus 
and um, and within that, all of of the rest of history is working itself out um, as people are uh, figuring out what it means um, now that we have been <laughs> saved from this terrible situation, and and some of us don't even know it yet, and and so, so much of the Christian life life is just saying to people like. We did it. Like it's over. Like the, the battle's over. You don't. There's no, as Carl Bart used to say. There, there's no. You should. There's only. Um, um, you may. Like that's you may. Um, there's no more. You um, or you must. There's no more. You may enter into this life together um, because everything is different now, and that that sounds like good news. Yeah. To me. Well said. Well, Melissa, thank you for joining us. You have been so gracious um, to be willing to give a copy of your amazing book away to our listeners. Um, So if you are listening to this podcast and would um, like a chance to win a copy of Melissa's new book, I am going to first challenge you to go and to subscribe to her mailing list at um, melissaflorabixler.org. And we will, of course, put all of her contact info in our show notes, which you can find at beccaepley.com. And once you have subscribed to her mailing list, then go onto one of our social media platforms and comment under this podcast post, and we will enter you to win her amazing new book, Fire by Night, Finding God in the Pages of the Old Testament. So, Melissa, thank you so much for being with us today. You're welcome. It's great to spend some more time with you. And I'm going to do a couple things that we don't normally do at the end of the podcast. I'm going to say first, um, our co-host, David, it is his birthday today. So we're going to say happy birthday, David. And he's waving to everybody who can't see him. And um, I'm also going to do one more thing um, that has just... um, I dear friend, um, her father, Rusty Smoker, was a um, great Mennonite community member in Kansas. And um, he has been gone about a year. And I just want to honor him in this podcast um, and all the lives that he has touched. And I remember being um, with his community a year ago and listening to over 100 people talk about how he had touched his life. And I think that's just a testament to not only Christ and God, but also the um, Mennonite community um, as a church um, and just Mm -hmm. the love that's there. So all that to say, thank you again, Melissa. And we um, are so excited for your book to be um, available to everyone and to go buy it, everybody go buy it, go order it, go get it on all your Kindle, Amazon. Also give her reviews because as she she said earlier, there's only four women who have written Old Testament books on Amazon. And oh my gosh, ladies, you know, that means we got to get out there and get that going. Yeah. Thanks, Becca. All right. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you for joining us on Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley, and thank you to my good friend and co-host, David Roberts. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and you'll never miss an episode. We are available on all the major podcasting platforms. And while you're there, if you would leave us a rating and or review, we are always looking for more and more ways to hear from our listeners. You can find the links for today's guests 
in the show notes located at BeccaEpley.com. We do hope that you will join us for our next episode.